Good morning. It's uh, great to be here this morning. And uh, <clears throat> see if I can uh, see how does that. All right. He's got it under control. It's great to be here this morning. Uh, we are continuing our study on the story of the Bible. And the purpose of this series is to equip us with an effective tool to use when we are sharing our faith with others. And the past few lessons have <clears throat> covered um, a large span of time and history throughout the Old Testament. And these lessons have built on top of each other and they have led up to where we find ourselves today on this timeline. We talked about the age of the fathers and the age of Moses and these two dispensations and about how God communicated and interacted with his people throughout those times. So the lesson last week, we concluded the age of Moses and uh, we begin today talking about the first part of the life of Jesus and I'm happy to share some things with you about that. Again, throughout the entire Old Testament and everything that we've talked about up to this point, the thread that has been woven throughout all of that is that there is a Messiah that is going to come and to return, or that is going to come uh, at some point in time. And <clears throat> um, again, we just concluded uh, the age of Moses, and I'm happy to share some things with you this morning uh, that are very interesting and thought-provoking about the life of Jesus. But to quickly recap, again, uh, we talked about the the two dispensations, but to um, transition from the age of Moses into the new dispensation and talking about the life of Jesus, we need to quickly step back into the Old Testament and talk for just a moment about the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a very active and um, effective prophet during uh, between about 900 and 18, or 1800, 900 and 800 BC. Uh, he did a lot of different things, but one of the things most note noteworthy is he really altered the course of the Israelites as they began to stray. Um, at one point in time, there was a, an evil king, King Ahab, who was worshiping uh, an idol. And so Elijah challenged the king uh, to prove the deity of his idol. And so what he did is uh, he challenged him to, and they both went up on a place called Mount Carmel. And they went up there and the challenge was is that they would both make offerings and sacrifices to their God, and whichever God sent down fire and burned up the sacrifice, that's how they would prove the deity. And so Ahab, his prophets, went up there, and they prayed for hours, and they prayed, and they prayed, and of course nothing happened. And then Elijah went up there and prayed to God, and God sent a fire down and burned everything up. And so <clears throat> it was a very uh, public, open display of the deity of God, and again, it uh, helped really, um, you know, redirect the Israelites as they they began to stray. So that's a, just quickly uh, about who Elijah was. Next, we need to look at the very last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi uh, chapter four, verses five and six. The very last. Uh, verses of the Old Testament says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. 
So it's the very last verse, and then God is silent for 400 years. And the Israelites just continue to uh, offer sacrifices and, and to live exactly how they had been living for 400 years, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And Malachi prophesies that, um, that someone will come as a precursor uh, to that Messiah. And that person, I'm getting a little, I'm, a little disclaimer here. I've this, there's 48 slides, and I'm going to do my best to coordinate uh, <laughs> with uh, where I'm at in the, uh, in the sequence. But so Malachi prophesies that, that, uh, that uh, someone will come as a precursor. And <clears throat> it wasn't literally Elijah himself that came, but rather someone similar, someone that was born in the Holy Spirit and that was full of zeal. And that person was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, again, as a precursor to Christ, and his intention and his purpose was to begin preaching and preparing the way for uh, the coming Messiah. Here's what the New Testament says about him. In Luke, the first chapter, verses 13 uh, through 17, uh, part of that is, and he says, And he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. In Matthew 11, uh, Jesus quotes the... Um, passage from uh, the prophet Malachi when he says that uh, for this is of whom it is written behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare a way for you and then in a few verses he literally says speaking of John the Baptist and if you're willing to receive it that John the Baptist is who Malachi was prophesying about it he confirms that John the Baptist is Elisha who is or Elijah who is to come and finally in John uh, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and the same came for a witness, to bear witness of that light, that light being Jesus, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. So John the Baptist, again, is, was a precursor to Jesus, and in my mind was really a con the conduit that ties the Old Testament everything we've talked about up to this point um, to the coming of the Messiah. But what really binds Jesus to the Old Testament and to uh, the proof that he was that Messiah that had been prophesied about and, and was to come? The, thing, the binder that we have is all of the prophecies that through the thousands of years, the, all the prophets that prophesied about uh, the coming Messiah, and the fulfillment is really what binds Jesus um, to all of those. So again, how can we know that the man, Jesus himself, was the Messiah that was on his way? There were over 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah, and again, the fulfillment of those was the only true litmus test to qualify that Jesus was the Son of God. So it's very important, and I'm going to do the absolute best job I can relating this to you, uh, to understand the impossibility of any person who is not divinely inspired to fulfill all of these 300 prophecies as Jesus did. <clears throat> so to do that, I want to look at um, a few statistics and a few you know, odds, and this, this stuff is very interesting to me. Uh, but let's forget about the prophecies for a second and talk about uh, the lottery, the chances of winning the lottery, which we know are very, very... Uh, uh, great and very big. So the chances of winning the lot, you, 
all of the things that I'm going to show you, this, these things are more likely to happen to you than for you to win the lottery. So you are more likely to get killed in a car accident on the way to buy a lottery ticket than you are to actually win the lottery. You're more likely to be murdered than you are to win the lottery. It's a real optimistic uh, outlook on life. You're more likely to drown specifically in a bathtub than win the lottery. You're more likely to be killed by being left-handed and using a right-handed uh, product incorrectly than winning the lottery. And finally, <laughs> finally, this one's pretty humorous to try to visualize it happening. You're more likely to be killed by a vending machine than you are to win the lottery. <laughs> so this gives us a little bit of perspective. So what are the odds of winning the lottery? The odds that you'll win the Powerball lottery are 1 in 292 million. So all of the other things are more likely to happen. So it gives us a little bit of perspective. So Peter wrote um, that just a few verses uh, before this, I want to go back, uh, because he says basically that, um, that the, well, we'll read this verse and I'll back up. Peter says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. All these prophecies we've been talking about, Peter, who was there, says that these have been confirmed, which you will deal well, do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. The, the verses just before this, what Peter says is, he says, listen, we were, we're not just, we were not just following cunningly devised fables. This wasn't just some story. We were literally there, and we, we were witnesses uh, to these prophecies in the fulfillment that Christ um, executed of these prophecies. So again, Jesus fulfilled over 300 of these prophecies, and let's just look at a few of them. <clears throat> First of all, the it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so there's an estimated, um, don't know the accuracy of this number, but it's estimated that somewhere around 108 billion people uh, have been born into the world. And of that, only no more than 50,000 of 108 billion were actually born in Bethlehem. So that really, from right out of the gate, one, one out of 300 prophecies really narrows the funnel down uh, right out of the gate. And secondly, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Bethlehem, there was a lot of poor people there, a lot of people couldn't afford a donkey, and Jerusalem wasn't really that far from Bethlehem, but let's just say out of 50,000 people ever born in Bethlehem, that 25,000 of them rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, as Jesus did. Next, Jesus was obviously crucified. And crucifixion was something that was only used, I read, for about 500 years um, during this period of time. And so out of the people born in Bethlehem that rode into Jerusalem on a donkey uh, that were crucified really narrows it down. And I'm going to have to look at my numbers here because there were several numbers I was looking at. Let's say that, um, so during this time of crucifixion, let's say that 10,000 people were actually born in Bethlehem during that time. Okay, so that narrows it down. And how many do you think out of 10,000 people were killed by crucifixion? Maybe one out of 10? Probably not. That would be 10% of the population. But let's just say to be extremely able that one out of every 10 people during Be uh, in, born in Bethlehem were crucified. That narrows it down to 1,000 people uh, that, that could have 
been born in Bethlehem, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and that were crucified during that time. Now, crucifixion was used um, as a punishment for a few different things, but they were typically more extreme, at least in the, the eyes of the people during that time. People who were murderers. Uh, I read that pirates were, were often crucified. Uh, people who rebelled against the government were crucified, and of course thieves. And the Romans didn't let you pick who you were crucified with. And so, as it was prophesied, the fact that Christ was crucified between two thieves really narrows it down um, even further. So let's say that uh, that gets us down to a hundred people were actually crucified uh, between uh, two thieves. So you can see the, the funnel really, really narrowing. And then it gets even narrower when we consider that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Crucifixion, again, was um, one of the... T- typically, after these people who were crucified, their bodies were just you know, thrown out into an open grave, right? They were just th- discarded, thrown into the trash, basically. But Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb, as it had been prophesied that he would. And, <clears throat> you know, to think about that... Um, one of the things that the Romans crucified people for was uh, uh, a, if a slave rebelled against it, their master, they would crucify all of the slaves. Okay, so you know, think about all these people. They, they weren't burying, uh, burying slaves in rich man's tombs like Jesus was. So again, it further narrows down uh, to we could come up with about maybe 10 people out of 108 billion that fit just uh, five of these prophecies out of over 300. Hopefully you're still with me. I know I'm, I know I'm uh, uh, throwing a lot of numbers and stuff here to illustrate this. So those are just five. Now let's just consider two that while those were rare, it would be extremely difficult for one person to have done all of those uh, and really narrows the number down. There, there's two here that were impossible. And one is that Jesus was born of a virgin, and two, that he was resurrected after his death, and that he rose from the grave. Both of those are impossible. They don't happen. And so it further confirms the deity of Jesus, and that he was exactly who he said he was. So what are the chances that anyone could fulfill just 48 of the three of more than 300 prophecies from the Old Testament of the Messiah. The chances are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, the way that that number is written doesn't mean a lot to me other than if I try to punch that into a calculator, it's going to give me an error code, right? It's a big number. But this is what that number looks like. And it keeps going. <laughs> it's a huge number of the odds that, that one person could fulfill just 48 of these prophecies. So I think it's very interesting, and it's very important to consider that uh, because, it, again, it really binds Jesus uh, to the Old Testament and um, proves that he was the Son of God. From Jesus' birth, he, the, the proof of his deity in that he was the Son of God uh, was from day one, what was made evident along the way. In Luke 2 and 11, it says, For there was born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is an angel that appeared uh, to the shepherds and told them 
uh, about the, uh, the birth of Christ so they could go see for themselves. So, <clears throat> excuse me, so there's two sides of Jesus that this five-part study uh, in these, these two sections um, consider, and today we're just considering what's on the left side, the Son of God. We're just looking at the, div the, divini the divinity and the, uh, uh, the deity, the divine side of Christ. And then next week, uh, Mike will talk uh, about his, the human side of Jesus and tell us a little bit more about his life on earth. But there's two things that we want to consider this morning, and the first is the nature of Christ. <clears throat> I think it's important for us to form an idea and a picture in our mind and understand some characteristics of Christ. Um, and the first is that he is eternal. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, speaking of Jesus, with God. In Mike it says, but you, Bethlehem, uh, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. And finally in Revelation, says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So Jesus is eternal. So when we're born, we begin our life and we live, and we're going to live. Obviously, we're going to die here on this earth, but then we're going to live somewhere um, for eternity. Okay? Jesus was the same way, except that Jesus' life also spans back uh, forever. And that's hard for me to wrap my head, my head around. And the, the eternity is because we're, uh, we, we, you know, everything is, uh, time is, is very important to us. You know, we, we um, have schedules and we count and consider things in terms of years and days and weeks. And with Jesus, there is no time. He is eternal. He, he always was and he always will be. First John, it says... It actually uh, calls him eternal life. The second thing we need to consider is that he's the creator. Now, this was something else that was hard for me to try to get my head around. Um, and uh, Mike explained it and related it to me in a way uh, that made a lot of sense. <clears throat> that Jesus, I've always thought as, Jesus, as, as uh, God as our creator, as the creator, and Jesus as our savior. But what does the Bible say about Jesus and creation? In John, it says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In Colossians, it says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And so uh, the way that Mike related this to me that made more sense is that, you know, God was... Uh, God had the vision. He was, you know, the ultimate create. Uh, the, 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 the design was by God, but Jesus was the active agent that made it happen. So that relationship, you know, it's kind of like Monty and myself at work. You know, I have, we get a project, and I see the big picture, and I see what needs to happen, but he's the, act, he's the one that's actually executing, you know, and, and uh, turning the dream into reality. And so in that uh, sense, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that Jesus is also your creator. And then finally about the, hum the nature of Christ is that Jesus is God. There's a lot of religions, um, some, you know, uh, that, uh, many rather, that 
don't view Jesus as the Son of God, but rather just a prophet or you know a good guy, and they don't um, they do not uh, uh, accept that he is the Son of God that he claimed. First Timothy it says, and without, without great without and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. In Hebrews, it says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And finally, in Matthew, uh, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So let's talk about, uh, just for a second, the mission of Christ. What did Christ come here to actually do? The first thing he did was he came to save the lost. <clears throat> How do we summarize what um, Christ's mission was? Uh, sorry, I got a little bit ahead of myself. So the first thing he came to do was to save lost. In Luke it says, for the Son of Man who has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And then in Matthew it says, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for, for many for the remission of sins. <clears throat> so how did Jesus, so we know that he came to save lost, but how did he do it? Well, of course he preached and you know, he performed miracles, and he did all of that while he was on earth. But really, ultimately, what did he do? What he did was he brought a new covenant. In Hebrews, in uh, two different parts of uh, chapter 8, it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, insomuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant. And a, co a covenant is just an agreement, which was established on better promises, in that he says a new covenant, uh, later in, in, in uh, verse 13, it says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. So what we're uh, getting to here is that under the old covenant, you know, there was the, all the sacrifices and the old law and the Jewish customs and everything that they did, but uh, the, the new covenant that Christ brought nullifies the old one, and now there is a new one, which is the one that you and I live under today. Hebrews 9, it says, He is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testor. For the testament is in force after men are dead, but uh, since it has no power while the testator lives. And so what he's saying here is that the covenant or the agreement is only good and only became effect after Christ's death. So it's the same as if you and I have a will, uh, which by the way, Kyle, you and I should get together on, I need to do that. Uh, if, if I have a will, the will isn't really good for anything until after I die. And so he's the point here is that after Christ's death, the new covenant um, came into effect. So lastly, the thing that um, Christ's mission was centered on was that he built his church. In Hebrews 9, it says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In Acts it says, And the Lord added to that church daily uh, those who were being saved. So... <clears throat> Christ, you know, he wasn't here very long, and, uh, but he was very intentional with his time, and he accomplished a lot, especially right at the end of his life. And so, relevant to our study, the last question is, would you like to be added to his church? And it's noteworthy that, you know, we've been going through this series and learning how to use this um, when we're, as a tool, when sharing our faith. And so, I just 
wanted to note that this isn't the, the, the point in the study where you're looking for a really hard commitment um, uh, from the person that you're studying with, uh, but rather it's let's consider the prophecies and the fulfillment of those prophecies and consider the nature of Christ and his mission and what he came to accomplish and look how great that is and wouldn't you want to be a part of that is essentially what we're asking. But my question to you today is a little more direct. If you are not a part of this church, everything that we've been studying and leading up to today is uh, a good opportunity that you have to become um, a follower, a disciple of Christ and be added to his church. And if there's any way that the church this morning can help you, we'd ask that you come as we sing.